a really good scary movie does something to you. It slithers in through your senses and invades your mind, but it does so quietly. You will think that perhaps you were scared in the moment, but you'll be able to go about your day. And maybe you do for a little while, but then it gets dark. It can be embarrassing to let our imagination get away from us, but sometimes fear is our friend. Imagine this. You go to see a scary movie with a group of your friends. You drove there alone to meet them, and so when the movie ends, you are left to drive back home alone as well. The movie was terrifying and extremely bloody. A hulking figure in a filthy clown mask hunts down teenagers in their cars, gutting them with a large utility knife. He was violent, but calm. He never spoke. He never raged, just executed his task efficiently. The most unsettling part was when the killer was stalking his prey. He would wave to them calmly from his vantage point hidden in the trees. Your friends have parked in a different, more populated part of the lot, and so you wave goodbye at the door and walk your separate ways. Your side of the parking lot is eerie and quiet. It is late very late, later than you had anticipated, and the box office staff have all gone home for the night. The front of the theater is dark, and darkness is full of possibilities. A fog has settled in, hanging low over the empty asphalt. It shimmers in the streetlight's otherworldly glow, and you'd swear you can just see it moving, but the air is still. You walk slowly and deliberately to your car, you're alone in the parking lot, and yet you can feel another person's eyes on you. Are they behind you? Are they concealed by the distant fog? Never mind, there's nothing there. You slide your car key between your index and middle finger, just in case, and look over your shoulder every few steps. When you finally make it to your car, you notice the windows are fogged over, and you drag your finger along the surface of the glass, hoping to reveal a swipe of clear. But that's not what happens. How strange. It's most certainly damp outside, but how did the condensation get inside your car? You unlock the door and slip inside, observing the quiet, listening for breath that isn't yours. You look over your shoulder, but you feel silly. You're letting your imagination get the best of you, and so you move on. You jam the key into the ignition and turn. The car wakes up and the radio trickles out old-fashioned music, which is strange because you usually listen to Top 40. But you just want to go home, so you keep driving. But that feeling, the feeling that someone is watching you, has never left. You're alone in your car, and yet, you could swear that you're not. You reach your hand around in the back seat and feel nothing, so you press on. This is silly, you're just projecting the horrors you recently saw on screen into your real life. But then, you remember five little words that flashed across the screen right before the movie began, based on a true story. You think perhaps you should pull over just to be safe, but it's too late. In your rearview mirror, you see a dark figure sit up in the back seat, 
You remember how in the movie, the killer had hid in the trunk and pushed the seats down to crawl through the car while it was in motion. You scream and pound your gas pedal to the floor as your tires screech into the shoulder of the road at a breakneck pace. Hitting the guardrail, you careed into a wooded area and smash headfirst into a tree. Then the world around you goes black. When you come to, police officers are shining a flashlight into your face and attempting to pull you from the wreckage and load you onto an awaiting ambulance. They ask you what happened, but before you can explain, you see the gnarled figure who had appeared in your mirror before over their shoulder. You notice his filthy clown mask and the stoop in his shoulders. He is standing so still, his head slowly tilting from one side to the other. And ice-cold fear courses through you at a pace so fast it robs you of your voice completely. You want to tell the police you want to run, but you are paralyzed. The shape slowly raises his hand and waves. You are then loaded onto the ambulance and taken away, shaking violently and wondering, was it all in your head? Or is danger really lurking around every corner? I'm Holly. <laughs> I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. the car thing yeah yeah (laughs) of course you do because it's a real fear I know I'm always afraid someone's gonna be in the back of my car when I get in it yeah whenever I always shine a light Mm -hmm. back there before I get in the car then I check constantly but then also don't want to check so I'm like what if somebody's there if I'm by myself I will open the back doors and look before I get in Mm -hmm. I also will reach my hand back and like feel around all the time as though like Like, what's that gonna do (laughs) you would die instantly I know plus the (laughs) radius that you can touch is so small they could just be like whoop and duck away from your hand I um I start taking like I tally what's in my car so like Mm. in the back seat Mm -hmm. like the probably trunk area I'll start thinking about like okay like what is laying back there so like I would have to be able to see the person laying there because I have all this other junk laying in the car like they're on top yeah okay they would have to be on top of it yeah they're definitely not there top of the tennis racket the blanket my shoes probably a hoodie oh is that where I left my hoodie (laughs) 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 the trunk thing was the one that scared me I found that out I don't remember where I heard that. I don't know if it's true or an urban legend, but they, they yeah, could hide in a trunk and then push down your seats and I crawl through. It. Because, like, that's possible in I my know. car. 100%. I don't like it. I don't like it either. <laughs> but now everyone has that fear. So we are not alone. Oh. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, <laughs> We're getting spooky today. This week, to get into the Halloween spirit, we are telling you the terrifying true stories that inspired two of the most nightmare-inspiring films in horror movie history. Leslie, which movie are you talking about? A Nightmare on Elm Street. Ooh. Oh, man. I was so scared of Freddy when I was little. Yeah, same. Wow. Like, super scared. Mm -hmm. The scariest part in that movie for me is when, I think it's Johnny Depp's Mm -hmm. character, 
he gets pulled from the center of the bed, Mm -hmm. pulled down. And I remember being little and my brother was watching it and I walked in when that happened. And I was like, wait a second, that's supposed to be our safety zone. Oh, no. (laughs) Your brother is the reason you saw so many scary things. Oh, absolutely. Or Or was it your babysitter that— well, it's my brother's fault. He wanted to watch Pet Cemetery when I was five. And then a few years later, I walked in on him watching. Oh, my God. Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> no, that's no good. Um, and I, today, am talking about Candyman. Now, I haven't seen the new one yet, but I'm really excited to watch it. Mm. So maybe that'll be soon. So it might be hard to believe that these larger-than-life horror movies with these, like, terrifying boogeymen in them are inspired by real events. But we assure you... They were. And because I personally, I don't know about you, Leslie, but I don't want to look like the inspiration for a horror movie. No. I don't want them to be like, based on a true story, here's a scary hag, and it's me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want any part of that, right? No. And I think the one way that I can prevent that from happening is with a generous dose from that fountain of youth called... Validation. validation. That's right. You know we love some validation. And you fiends can help us out with that by going on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating. Five, five, five. Five, five, five. And or a friendly review. It only takes a moment. And it really is the most important thing you can do for us. It's it's like the only thing that can really move this podcast forward. Mm-hmm. So rate and review, please. And if you don't have enough, we would be dead in your life, you can go on over to Patreon and support us, where for just a little monthly donation, you will receive so much more in return. We'll give you a small gift in the mail from us, which is really fun. You'll get access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, which is so fun. That's just us talking, being crazy. It's all the stuff that you don't get to hear on the main feed because it's too much of a ramble. Yes. (laughs) You also get access to our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, extra monthly mini-sodes, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. Mm -hmm. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media feed to your social media feed. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell the guy selling you popcorn at the movie theater. He always looks bored, and his coworker is so aggressively friendly that he can barely manage an adequate smile by comparison. True. One of them is always like so friendly. Uh-huh. And the other one is like, what is this? Yeah. <sighs> I can't. I gotta be that guy. <laughs> what's what's our sad guy's name? Mm, Derek. Derek. Okay. Yeah. Does his friendly friend have a name? Um actually I feel like the friendly friend is Derek. Okay. That's who I was picturing. The first. friendly friend. Yeah. Aggressively friendly Derek and and um Billy. <laughs> Or disaffected youth Billy. Yeah, he's just like, oh, God. He hung his denim jacket up in (laughs) the back and then just rolled into the concession stand. did this to meet chicks, and I just stand in here with With these people. Derek. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then your friends and Derek and Billy can become fiends, (laughs) which, like, I might hang out with them. (laughs) I would, absolutely. Yeah. Then we can all hang out together. Yay. That's always the goal. That might be all I have for now. Oh, yeah. Come to our live show on Mischief Night at Cape May Brewing Company. I think we have um, VIP pass information up for our patrons. Is that true? Yes. Our patrons get first crack at our VIP passes, and what they will give you is a gift from us and a guaranteed front row, front area seat. Mm -hmm. And this time we will be able to set aside seats 
So yes. you will have a reserve seat just for you when you come mm-hmm. in. And, uh, and yeah, it's going to be super fun. So once our patrons have had their chance to get their seats, if we have any left, we'll open them up to everybody. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. I'm really excited for that. Yeah, me too. We're planning our costumes. I know some of our fiends are planning their costumes. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a really fun night. Yeah, Kate May Brewing Company is doing a costume contest. Mm-hmm. So another reason to come for that. Yeah, can't yeah. wait to see what everybody wears. Absolutely. All right. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? Well, no. I don't. Not this time? No. Mm, okay. No. All right, then. On with the show. And you know what? I'm going to turn it over to you first. Fantastic. Right. I just talked way too much. Mm-hmm. Take a breath. I'm gonna. Well, my story starts with a rhyme. I have my own little opener. Ooh, I can't wait. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Ew. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab a crucifix. Seven, eight, gonna stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. Ew. (laughs) I hate that. Oh, God. I hate that so much. It's the worst, right? Yeah, it's truly the worst. Kids, your kid voice. I know. Being a creep. Oh, no. Freddy Cougar's coming. (laughs) Freddy Cougar. Freddy Cougar. Okay. For those who do not know, A Nightmare on Elm Street is an iconic 1984 American slasher film written and directed by Wes Craven. In the film, several Midwestern teenagers are terrorized in their dreams by Freddy Krueger, a disfigured midnight mangler. The dreams mangler. Yeah, that's a great title. (laughs) The teens quickly realize that if Freddy kills them in their dreams, they die in real life. Thus begins a terribly stressful time for these youngsters who try their hardest to stay awake or at least alive in their dreams until they could figure out who Freddy Krueger is and what he wants. Turns out Freddie was once the groundskeeper at their preschool while they attended. The parents found out Freddie was a pedophile and child molester and had been molesting their children, so they set fire to him in a boiler room at the school, hence the melted, burned Freddy Krueger face that he has. Like, why did they have to add on that he was a pedophile? So I don't mention this at the end, but one of the things is during this period of time in history, Mm -hmm. that was like a fear that was— you know, in the news a lot, like oh, yeah. child molesters and pedophiles. This that was, was just in, coming out a lot more as the 80s. This so, was a big satanic panic time. Yeah. So that too. was something that Wes Craven and other writers were feeding off of, that idea that, like, this would be the thing that parents would be terrified of. We'll cover the McMartin preschool trial soon. Maybe yeah. even next, because we refer to it so much. Yeah. And um, it scared me so much when I was a kid. <laughs> I know, Yeah. When I read that A Nightmare on Elm Street was based on a true story, I assumed it had to do with a pedophile child molesting true crime case. Right. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. And this movie was made as a psycho psychoanalyst of a, is that right? Psychoanalysis? Psycho, that's, yep. Okay. And I wrote it like that. I just can't read. <laughs> <laughs> you read all the other words around it. You're doing great. And this movie was made as a psychoanalysis of a young girl working through the trauma of having been repeatedly molested. That would have been the most obvious inspirational aspect of it. It sounds awful, but like very plausible. Right. 
But no, Wes Craven was inspired by a news article in the L.A. Times he had read in the 1970s about a refugee child from the Cambodian genocide who was terrified to sleep for fear that he would be attacked in his dreams and never wake up. What? The boy's parents were sure he was suffering from some sort of PTSD and hoped after a good night's sleep the boy would feel better. The boy tried to stay awake as long as he could, and to his parents' relief, he finally did fall asleep. In an interview with Vulture, Wes Craven says, When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought this crisis was over. Then they heard screams in the middle of the night. By the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of a nightmare. Oh my God. This little kid just died? Yeah. Ugh! So this story was not an isolated incident. There were dozens of similar stories involving Southeast Asian refugees in America who died for unknown reasons in their sleep during the 1980s. The mysterious deaths were usually among young men in their 20s and 30s from the Hmong ethnic group and affected a large enough segment of this population to alarm public health experts. Mm -hmm. The Hmong men who suffered from these deaths were typically refugees from Laos, a small landlocked country in Southeast Asia. During the Vietnam War, the CIA recruited the Hmong men from Laos to fight North Vietnamese soldiers. More than 30,000 Hmong men, or sorry, Hmong soldiers helped the U.S. fight communism in the Northern Highlands where they lived, but died at a rate 10 times higher than their American counterparts. Well, that's traumatic. I know. Jesus. Once the war ended in 1975, Laos became a communist country. Immediately, the new leadership saw the Hmong men who helped the U.S. as traitors and any of the other people that had helped the American soldiers. Oh, my God. Many of the survivors fled to Thailand or the U.S. as refugees. Okay. So that's like traumatizing yeah, right that's there, awful. right? I mean, that'll give you nightmares. Yeah. Not only was their time in war life threatening, but their journeys to Thailand and America were equally as treacherous. It would be understandable for these men and their families to arrive in a new and strange place away from their homes and to be suffering from some sort of PTSD. Yeah. Not only were the Hmong men dealing with emotional distress of resettlement, but the majority of the refugees in the U.S. were also living in poverty because, of course, America would make them risk their lives for us, but then— let them fend for themselves once the war was over. That sounds right. But soon a number of the Hmong refugees befell a mysterious ailment. Word spread in headlines such as mysterious fatal malady striking Hmong men and night deaths of Asian men unexplained ran in the LA Times throughout the late 1970s and early 1980s. One of these would be the story that caught Wes Craven's imagination. So one was about that boy. Can you imagine just being in this population at that time? People are like, well, a lot of people just like you are going to sleep and then just dying mid-nightmare. I know. It's terrifying. I would never sleep again. Mm-mm. Ugh. Now, some of these, there are, I, I had a hard time. I was trying to find if there were... Um, real I read a couple of actual articles from this time period okay. and none of them directly say that they like what their nightmares if they had a nightmare it just that all of them in their sleep anybody that was with them it looked as though they were living a nightmare before they died oh so they were like thrashing yeah, around and right. stuff so it's not Ooh. so other than like that young boy that Wes Craven brings up mm-hmm. like who felt like if he like he didn't want to go to sleep because he was having these terrible nightmares and he was afraid he was going to die a lot of these older men 
where they didn't even really have a chance to say that to somebody, but well, they were clearly going through like a distress. Yeah. I think though, like an adult isn't necessarily going to be like, guys, I'm having nightmares. Right. Someone's chasing me. Yeah. yeah you're like, just like, well, I'm having bad dreams. But yeah. a kid is going to tell his parents right away. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. An article from the L.A. Times in 1981 tells the story of a 47-year-old Laotian refugee, Young Lang Theo, who relocated to the U.S. from a refugee camp in Thailand with his wife and eight children. Wowzers. About a year later, he was asleep in bed next to his wife when his labored breathing woke his wife up. She tried to shake him awake, but his breathing became more labored. He wasn't waking up, and moments later, he died leaving his wife sitting beside him, horrified and in tears. Oh, my God. What the fuck happened? Like, my husband gets sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. So sometimes he will just, like, do that. Like, breathe heavy and make, like, noises to try and wake himself up. Yeah. If he just... Can you imagine that happening and then just dead? Mm Mm-hmm. That is the scariest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. (sighs) He was the fourth Hmong man to die while sleeping in nine months. Oh, my God. And the 13th nocturnal Hmong Hmong death recorded since 1978, according to this article. Investigators could find no medical explanation for the deaths. Medical reports and history showed these men as otherwise healthy with no known health risks or family history of health risks, specifically no cardiovascular problems, because that's what they're going to harp on. It had to do with the heart. The only thing alarming was that many of these men had died in their sleep, as we said before, like thrashing around, like scared, yeah. almost like they like were having some nightmare. Breathing heavily and like mm-hmm. freaking out, yeah. But there just wasn't any scientific explanation. Many community members attributed the deaths to chemical nerve agents that refugee soldiers of the Vietnam War would have been exposed to. The theory was not supported by doctors, however. Dr. Larry V. Lumen, the medical examiner for Yang Li Theo, the story I just told you, Mm -hmm. and another 29-year-old Hmong refugee who suddenly died in his sleep, was quoted in the LA Times article as saying, nerve gas does not act this way, and if it was a nerve agent, why was it only affecting men and why only in their sleep? Because all of these other— people, right? They were with people, and all of those, anyone coming from Laos would have also been— Yeah. Like— in this war, like they were in the middle of a war zone, so like they would have also it would have been everybody, this nerve. yeah, not just like thirteen guys, right? That's and then why was it like this little boy and yeah. those teenagers, you know? But and then again, only and men. not whomever was sleeping next to them. And why was why were none of the American soldiers affected that were there? Huh. Oh, that is so weird. After a dozen more Hmong refugees were reported dying in their sleep with no real cause of death, doctors tried to piece together as much other information as they could to make sense of it. Some factors they compiled were that all these men suffered from maladjustment to a new environment, they were separated from family, all overworked, living in poverty, feeling like traitors to their country, and dealing with the terrors of the war and genocide. All you know, it at least makes sense that they're stressed out. Yeah, but to suddenly die in the middle of the night. Doctors agreed that these could all be risk factors for sudden unexplained death syndrome. So like SIDS, but with adults? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. But there was still something missing, and none could give a clear medical explanation as to as to how and why these men died in their sleep. Wow. 
With no medical explanation turning up, many Hmong people began to believe the spirits of their ancestors were punishing them for leaving their homeland. Yeah, They're you're just, gonna you're gonna look for anything. Yep. They worried that because they were not in their homeland, they did not have access to the right things to perform the proper rituals to appease their ancestral spirits. <sighs> Most of the Hmong people continued to believe this over any medical explanation that came their way, and rightfully so. All the explanations were theories that left open-ended questions. After several years and 117 young Hmong men who died in their sleep, medical doctors grew fairly certain that the cause was due to a cardiovascular problem. However, from what they could tell, the heart didn't look like a heart that had just underwent a heart attack or any major stress. It looked more like there was an electrical shortage to the heart. But just still weird that it just happened with these men and not like, and just men. Yeah. To this day, researchers continue to study sudden unexplained death syndrome in hopes to better understand its cause, but have remained baffled as to why it affected the dozens of Southeast Asian men who have left home all within a two-year period. And again, this just all happened in a two-year period, and then it was just like— and then it just stopped? Yeah. It sounds like like something genetic, but they weren't all related. Right. Mm Mm-mm. And when they would do these autopsies on them, yeah. there wasn't, they couldn't find anything else wrong with them. They just, they were, they were in the their The power prime. just went out. Yeah. They were young, healthy men. Wow. Oh, man. Just under a lot of stress. But, like, so was their entire population that came over. Plus, like, lots of humans get really, really, really stressed out for horrible reasons. Mm-hmm. And they don't all short circuit. Yeah. That's not, like a common response to mm-hmm. that. It's like ex- an extreme outlier. If you told the story of one person who had that happen to them, it would be shocking, let alone quite right. a few. Mm-hmm. Wow. So scary. Yeah, for sure. So that's the big story that sparked Wes Craven's imagination. But Wes was also inspired by a personal experience he once had as a small child. Ooh. One evening, while a young Wes was inside his home, a creepy old man walked along the path beside his window. The man stopped and stared at West, scaring him before wandering off. He just like, Ew. Yeah. It's an old man just staring at him in his window for like Ew. longer than necessary. Wasn't like walking by and looked in the window, like stopped and stared at him. That's some Golden State Killer shit. Yep. West kept that image of that man in his mind when developing Freddy Krueger's character, wondering what psychological factors would compel a man to stop what he was doing to just scare a young child. Yeah, what are you, (laughs) you creep? Oh, my gosh. And uh, that's the true story behind The Nightmare on Elm Street. Wow. Yeah. Holly, have you ever died in your sleep? Not once. No? No. That's good. But, like, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Whoever knows what could happen. I have died twice in my sleep. Have you? Once I was in a cemetery. Oh, you mean in a dream? In a dream. I thought you were being silly. Like, have you ever been dead? No, have you ever died in in your sleep? No, I haven't. Yeah. But I mean, you got to say a dream. (laughs) Let's start that over. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Worse. Oh, no. I have done it twice and been resuscitated. I, know. I was like, where are we going with this? Oh, no. Okay, have you ever died in your dream? <laughs> Worst. Um, no. I've never actually gone all the way to being dead in a dream. I mean, I've been in peril. I've been, like, you know, 
thinking I was dying, but I've never mm-hmm. died. Yeah. Have you? Yes. So I died mm-hmm. twice, but one one time was like in a cemetery and it was like a weird circumstance, obviously, as dreams are. Mm-hmm. But either way, it was like I got knocked out basically, but it was like I knew that they were trying. Oh, no, they were. I wasn't knocked out. They snapped my neck. Who are they? It was so it was actually a friend of mine and he was oh, no. saving me from being horrifically killed like ew he mercy killed you by yeah, breaking because your because we had these other people that were going to take us and then I'd probably be like tortured and and worse things would happen so Why is this your dream? I don't know, but Leslie. it was weird. It was weird. And it was a friend like I haven't seen in a while. I like called him. I was like, "You just saved my life but also killed me." <laughs> you gave me a mercy death in in a cemetery. I think I was being chased by um by what's that director? Oh, Rob Zombie, and like his like. <laughs> so let me get this straight. Let me just okay. Just okay. recap. Rob Zombie is his, chasing you and his friends, and his friends are chasing you and your friend through a cemetery yeah. with the intention of like ripping you limb from limb. Yeah, and I think they were all dressed as My Chemical Romance. <laughs> Like from you a do, black of course. Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> and then, in order to save you from this like painful death, your yeah. friend turns to you instead of being like, "How can we run yeah. or hide?" Just there was snaps no running or hiding. They were they were coming. They okay. were coming for us. We had nowhere to go. Great. Snaps my neck, and then all went black. And it was like the most peaceful. Ew. I was like asleep in my dream. I don't like this at all. It was weird. And then I woke up. We're definitely going to do a 30-minute on House of a Thousand Corpses now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> was there another time? Did you say there was two times? Oh, yeah. Then I think I drowned in one. That was also I like have... a calming. Ew. Why? Okay. It was weird because then there's just nothing out. There's no other feeling. You're just dead in your dream. Oh but that's God. like a weird. That's super weird. I don't like it. I'm just saying that that's how but... I felt, though. Like for like that those couple seconds before then I woke up. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. Ew, that is unsettling. I would assume it feels like when you meditate and you can actually clear your mind completely. Oh, I can't do that. that. Right. And I don't generally, <laughs> I generally can't do that. So those were those like little bits of time where I was completely cleared of a thought. Oh my God. Ew. That's giving me hives. That's, <laughs> I know, she's like itching so bad. That's the scary. I don't like that at all. I have had dreams where I was drowning and it was like the worst sensation ever because I was, but I was panicking. As I was drowning, it wasn't just like, well, I'll die now. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, goodbye. Why is that your reaction? Oh, well. <laughs> no, I think that was just it. I think I okay. just. Oh, man. I wonder what that says about us. I don't know. I mean, I generally fight for my life and my dreams. I mean, you but... wear sneakers in case. I do. Mm-hmm. I do. Leslie wants to be able to be frosty and get out of any situation. So she wears sneakers. Yeah. I think twice every time I put sandals on. I would die because I wear like really complicated tall shoes. Mm-hmm. I would just fall Well, they over. do propel you forward, so you would just have to keep going. I, I could take them off and stab people with them. Yep. Mm-hmm. That'd be good. You should practice that. Definitely. All right, so I guess it's my turn now. On to you. Mm. So I have like a little scary beginning too. Okay. Oh, man. It's scary time in this episode. (laughs) Quote, They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for if not for shedding? With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from your groin to your gullet. I came for you. 
you. You know how to play the game, don't you? Mm-hmm. First, make sure you are quite alone. Go into your bathroom and turn off all the lights. Nope. Stand in front of your bathroom mirror and say his name five times. Do. After you do, he will appear behind you and you may not be able to see him, but you will feel his breath on your neck just before you feel his hook in your flesh. Candyman. Stop it. Candyman. Don't do it, Holly. Candyman. No, there's no mirrors. We're not flashing lights. Candyman. No, don't do it again. Candyman. <laughs> I hate it. That's bad juju. <laughs> Did I get you? Is he here? No. Oh, I feel a breath. If he is, at least the podcast went out with a bang. So by now you guys know that I'm talking about Candyman, obviously, which is a terrifying fictional story based on a murder that was actually very, very real. And if you live in an apartment, this might make you want to take a moment to remove your medicine cabinet. Mm. For those of you who are not familiar with the film and subsequent sleepover game I am referring to, let me give you a quick synopsis. Candyman is a supernatural horror film written and directed by Bernard Rose. It was released in the fall of 1992 and has terrorized slumber parties ever since. The film tells the tale of a lovely young graduate student named Helen who is researching urban legends. Helen comes across the story of the Candyman, an angry ghost crawling with bees with a large rusty hook attached to the bloody stump where his right arm used to be. Say his name in the mirror five times and he will come to life and murder you with his hook. Sounds like a game we would just like jump to play, right? No. I know. I never understand why you want to play a game where the desired outcome is your death. I don't understand. If you do it right, he kills you. Why would you do it? I can't. I had such a hard time going to sleepovers. I would I would stress out beforehand at some houses because I was like, these girls love to do these scary games and would no. stress me the F out. I never did it. I would never go in the bathroom and no. do it. Other mm-hmm. girls would, but I was like, yeah. You're signing your own death certificate. I know. I had like I was I had the phone in hand, nine one one. Oh no. <laughs> I was like, I'll be here for you, Patrice. <laughs> Patrice. <laughs> oh my god, your head is just full of names. Oh yeah. I love it. <laughs> anyway, the movie really takes a turn when Helen discovers a woman living in the Cabrini Green Chicago housing project was murdered in her home while standing before her bathroom mirror. Upon looking into this case, Helen finds out that there have been 25 more murders like this within Cabrini Greens. Intrigued, Helen and her friend Bernadette repeat the Candyman's name in Helen's bathroom mirror, but nothing happens, or so they think. Come on, obviously something happened. But even though the Candyman himself seemingly failed to make an appearance, Helen still decides to write her thesis on the residents of Cabrini Green and how the murders and the legend of the Candyman have affected their lives. Helen, of course, decides to then visit Cabrini Green, bringing along Bernadette for good measure. She and Bernadette enter the housing project and visit the scene of Ruthie Jean's murder. There, they meet Anne-Marie McCoy and her infant son named Anthony, who tell them more about the night of the murder. The film goes on to reveal the Candyman's background story, which was that the Candyman was the son of a slave who became prosperous by mass-producing shoes during the Civil War. At an early age, she was accepted by white society because he had money and was a very talented artist. As such, he was much sought after to paint portraits of the local wealthy landowners and their children. 
but one such landowner's daughter falls in love with the Candyman while he is commissioned to paint her portrait. The Candyman returns her affection, and the two embark on a secret affair that results in a child, which made this girl's father pretty mad. The Candyman was set upon by a lynch mob that was hired by his lover's father. They cut off his right hand and smeared him with honey stolen from an apiary, which attracted the bees, and they then stung him to death. His corpse was burned and ashes scattered across the land on which Cabrini Green was later built. And that for sure is the recipe for one really pissed off ghost. Mm-hmm. Since then, the candy man covered in honey and bees, hence candy, because he's covered in honey, uh, with an enormous hook for a hand, has been coming through mirrors and violently slashing people to death in an attempt to avenge his own horrifying death. And there's a whole plot where he wants Helen to join him in the next life and, like, voluntarily get murdered by him because she looks like his previous lover. You guys can see the rest of that in the movie. That's all the the basics. So this episode is called Based on a True Story, though. And as far as I know, zero Civil War-era lynch mobs were intelligent enough to calculate the number of bee stings it would have taken to kill the Candyman and then actually attract that many bees. So just how many stings would it have taken? You might be wondering, because I know I was. (laughs) As it turns out, it takes a crazy amount of bee venom to kill a human, and there is a formula. A lethal dose of venom from a honeybee is 2.8 milligrams per kilogram of your body weight. And we're definitely talking about honeybees, because there's honey all over the place in this story. The approximate amount of venom in one honeybee sting is 59 micrograms. And for reference, one microgram is 0.001 milligrams. Are we seeing how this can add up to quite a few bees? hmm So because I don't want to do a lot of complicated math, let's go with the example the nice bee people at MikeCalculator.com came up with. The average weight of an adult male in North America is about 178 pounds. The lethal, lethal dose then required for said average male would be 228 milligrams of bee venom. So it would take approximately 3,831 stings to kill this fictional unlucky bee magnet. Okay. And a lot of honeybees only get one shot. Yeah, but what if he's allergic to that, bee stings? That's not what's happening here. But what if he is? That's Just like very the boy different. And, and my girl. That's a very different. We all knew Thomas J was allergic to bees. Right. It's not a bee allergy. I'm just saying, what if he had, what if they didn't even realize that he had one and they were like, well, that was convenient. Well, then I'll just stop and not read the rest of my things. Go on. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> then we're done here. <laughs> I truly don't believe that was the case as you see him like struggling and there's like bees descending upon him. It's okay. not like, I have an allergy. <laughs> Get an EpiPen. Okay. That's not what's happening. Anyway, Tony Todd, the actor who portrays the Candyman, is 6'5", and looks like he spends a considerable amount of time at the gym. So I'm going to say it would take even more bees than that to knock him off. And that's not to say this is impossible, though. Honeybees live in colonies of 20 to 30,000, but they're rarely aggressive and less provoked, and only travel in swarms when they're looking for a new home. So if you see a swarm of honeybees, they are not at their angriest. They are just out and about. They're just house shopping. Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. It's the Saturday afternoon. They're looking for real estate. Yeah. They're not looking to fuck up some dude who stole their honey. Um, and they're not they're not aggressive because they're not protecting their brood or their food. Mm. Just out. Yeah. On the other hand, Africanized honeybees will occasionally get overly stabby when you get loud in their territory. They don't care for lawnmowers. The vibrations can make them homicidal. Sure, it's only happened once, and that was in Texas, but still, it did happen. <laughs> 
Furthermore, the smell of honey doesn't make a bee angry, but strangely enough, bananas do. Oh. I know. Bananas contain a compound called isoamyl acetate, the very same as that which is in a honeybee's alarm pheromone. Okay. So beekeepers are advised to stay away from bananas and products that contain them when they're tending to their bees. Okay. Because it can make them really mad. Good to know. So taking everything we have just learned into account, if you really want to murder someone by way of bees, you should cover them in banana pudding and force them to mow the lawn near a hive. Oh, that's I like not, it. That's not nearly as sexy as the honey thing, though, so <laughs> feel free to suspend your disbelief. That would be... That would be great, though. Isn't that funny? That's. I think that's a great, like, story for a film. I just thought, like, how do you actually provoke a bee non-aggressively? Because these guys aren't, like, yeah. throwing them at him or anything. They're just right. like, we called them with a bit of their honey. That doesn't happen. Their right. own honey doesn't make them mad. But bananas do. I guess I would have assumed that they doused him in honey and, like— like, almost in my girl where he was like, but I guess that was like a wasp's nest, He, like, wasn't stepped that? on the nest. Yeah. yeah. And so mm-hmm. that will make them mad, much like a, like a lawnmower yeah. riles them up. I just assumed that was something that they did. They, like, riled, they riled the bees up. They, like, called them <laughs> with honey they stole. That no. doesn't happen. I think that was, like, a nice part of the story, but it was probably a lot more dramatic. There mm-hmm. was probably, like, they probably, like, threw the hive at them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, and that's he was, not, And then before he could speak, he was like, I'm allergic to pee. And then he died from yeah. one sting. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's not the true part of the story, but I found it extremely interesting. Okay. <laughs> you guys always get the benefits of my focus yeah. disorder. <laughs> so then which part of the Candyman story is actually true? Several pieces. In 1987, Clive Barker was inspired to write the short story The Forbidden which the film The Candyman was formerly based on, when he read a piece in the Chicago Reader called They Came Through the Bathroom Mirror. I already hate it. I know. By Steve B-O-G-I-R-A. Bogira? Bogira? B-O-G. Mm-hmm. I-R-A. Bogira? Bogira. We're going to call him Steve. (laughs) (laughs) This piece tells the terrifying story of a woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy, who was brutally murdered while locked in her Cabrini-Green apartment, alone. Mm. Now for a bit of history. Cabrini-Green Homes was a Chicago Housing Authority public housing project on the north side of Chicago that was put up over the course of 20 years, beginning in 1942. You see, in the 30s, Chicago was pretty terrifying and a dangerous place. Gangs ran much of the city, the Depression had rendered a lot of its residents homeless, And I don't think I have to tell you that this was particularly a hard time for the black residents of the city as they were far more aggressively pushed into poverty. But that's not a Chicago thing. That's more of a all of America thing. Mm -hmm. So to combat the Mad Max hellscape that this combination of gang violence, extreme poverty, organized crime, and homelessness created, the Chicago Housing Authority was formed with all the good intentions in the world. And they were to provide affordable, safe, low-income housing for thousands. And it all started off well enough. That sounds great. Affordable housing is a noble thing. Cabrini Green was projected to be, in the words of Time magazine, quote, an integrated utopian community with affordable rent prices in the heart of the city, not far from Chicago's magnificent mile. In 1942, Mayor Edward J. Kelly proclaimed that the apartments, quote, symbolize the Chicago that is to be, adding, quote, we cannot continue as a nation half slum and half palace. It was even built at the intersection of Chicago's two richest neighborhoods. So, 
essentially, they construct this huge low-income housing project directly in the middle of the wealthiest Chicago neighborhoods. Mm. Which is an odd choice, but I kind of see what they're doing. They're trying to put it in a good place to give these people a better start so that they're not still stuck in these depressed neighborhoods where they were. And this utopian fantasy sounds great, but it was never really given a chance. While it all sounds nice in theory, something like what they imagined Cabrini Green to become requires money, time, and extensive social service support. And it got precisely none of those things. The buildings were shoddily made, and corners had clearly been cut during construction. And yet, people flooded into them, not knowing what they were stepping into. After all, thousands and thousands of Chicagoans were desperately homeless. And I don't know if you've heard this or not, but it's not exactly warm there in the wintertime. Nearly 15 to 17,000 residents, depending on the article you read, resided within the manufactured community at the height of its population. But with no social support and a slapdash infrastructure, it didn't take long for the buildings to start to crumble. And once they started, no one did anything to stop this degeneration, basically. Mm -hmm. Elevators stopped working, appliances malfunctioned, there were fires, and since there was little to no security present, violent gangs quickly took over. Mm. By the 1980s, Cabrini Green was a notoriously unsafe place to be, and while it wasn't the poorest or most violent neighborhood in Chicago, it was an island of poverty and violence situated right in the middle of two affluent neighborhoods. So it stuck out, to say the least, and developed a reputation as the very worst example of, quote, the projects. Mm. In fact, Cabrini Green became so synonymous with depressed housing projects that in a move of stunningly poor taste, Saturday Night Live writers wrote a character who was a 17-year-old mother of two named Cabrini Green Jackson— for their first female black cast regular, Denitra Vance. This example is fucking awful. Yeah. I mean, that's awful. Really? You did uh -huh. that? I can't. And this is the 80s. Like, we were... It was bad. Uh, yeah, then, we though. were alive. Um, <laughs> and while this is really fucking terrible, and I, have, I can't even believe it happened, it does showcase how deeply the neighborhood's reputation ran. Yeah. Despite all of that, most of the residents of Cabrini Green claimed that they were a very tight-knit community and took care of one another. According to Time Magazine, one resident said, quote, it was like a little village. Everyone knew everyone. He says, there was gang activity, but also a lot of structure amongst others that weren't involved. After-school programs where they'd have games, trampolines, screen painting, quilt sewing. We put on dance routines and dressed up like the zombies in the thriller video. Aww. Isn't that cute? Yeah. So there are two sides to every coin. A lot of the residents, I mean, and they would have organized these things themselves. This isn't like the housing authority doing it for them. This okay. is them being like, okay, well, we have to take care of our kids. Mm -hmm. And that's a real testament to their community that they thought to do those things. Absolutely. Now that brings us up to 1987 and a 52-year-old woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy. Ruthie Mae lived in a high-rise housing project development within Cabrini Green known as ABLA. ABLA was an acronym for four different housing developments that together constituted one large site. The four housing developments that made up ABLA were the Jane Adams House, Robert Brooks Home, Loomis Courts, and the Grace Abbott Homes, and they held a total of 3,596 units. Hmm. It's like a little segment of this housing project. In They Came Through the Bathroom Mirror, author Steve had this to <laughs> say about Ruthie's residence, quote, she lived in one of the seven 15-story brown Y-shaped towers named the Grace Abbott Homes, the most dangerous buildings in Abla. A claustrophobe in a closet might be more at ease than a paranoid like McCoy in an Abbott high-rise. 
The building featured dark, malfunctioning elevators, pitch-black stairwells, and cocaine and PCP addicts on nearly every floor. Fiends really are lurking in the shadows here. In these towers, you're crazy if you're not always looking over your shoulder. McCoy lived at the end of a corridor on the 11th floor of the building at 1440 West 13th Street. So clearly, this is the basis for the Cabrini Greens of Candyman fame. It looks, it sounds like these scary Mm -hmm. buildings and stuff. It is also a super insensitive and biased view of literally everything in the story. (laughs) But they came through the bathroom mirror is the definitive retelling of this story. And they use the word fiends. I know. Not our fiends. Not our fiends. So take it, but take it with a grain of salt. (laughs) In truth, Ruthie Mae did have her struggles. Most articles will claim that she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, but this isn't the truth. She was actually diagnosed with, quote, residual-type schizophrenia, a disease that arises when someone has experienced schizophrenic episodes in the past but is not currently exhibiting symptoms. So it's something like you can go through periods of time where you exhibit symptoms, and then it kind of goes dormant and you're okay for a little while. Gosh, there's so much to, like— I don't know. I know. Just, and I, I I feel like that's even scarier. That, yeah. You don't have a constant. Right. It's just like at any time, reality might just slip through your fingers. These episodes, coupled with the fact that they had landed Ruthie in an institution twice, made it very difficult for Ruthie to hold down any sort of job, mm-hmm. which is how and why she wound up in Cabrini Green. Okay. Thankfully, despite her financial difficulties, Ruthie was receiving outpatient treatment at a local psychiatric hospital, and therefore she was able to live a pretty quote-unquote normal life. But it wasn't without incident, and she certainly had her eccentricities. For example, she invested her money um, pretty much solely in televangelists, and she would tape testimonials up all over the walls of her apartment that told of incidents where God had miraculously healed people, people who, of course, donated generously. Religious ideation is a relatively common fixation for people who struggle with schizophrenia, though. And Ruthie didn't hurt anyone but herself with this, so it wasn't really much of note. She would send what few extra pennies she had to local preachers who claimed they could ask God to cure what ailed her. Mm. Mm-hmm. Great. Listen, it's, it's sad, but this isn't astounding. I think we all had that one grandma who was a little heavy-handed on the God stuff. <laughs> Ruthie was also known to be irritable and lash out at local children. And her neighbors said she would, quote, curse at strangers on the street. Aw. I know. She's like, (laughs) damn kids. Get out of here. That's what I want to be. I got God to talk to. (laughs) But despite her challenges, there was evidence of Ruthie taking steps to leave the projects in the months prior to her murder. She had even received approval for supplemental security income, which doubled the amount of monthly assistance she received, and SSI paid retroactively to the date of application, which means that Ruthie's first check was nearly $2,000, a pretty enormous sum of money for someone struggling with poverty in the 80s. All of this adds up to a lady who struggled with her mental health, did not have a lot of friends, lived alone, and had recently come into some money. Not only that, but she was also known for spouting off the occasional hysterical tirade. Mm. That's like a target. For sure. So on April 22nd, 1987, when she started talking about people threatening her life on her bus ride home from treatment, no one took Ruthie seriously. She was saying that she could hear people in her, when she was in her apartment, she heard people talking about killing her. Oh. Yeah, she's like, I can hear them. They're saying they're going to try to kill me. And, of course, people were like, well, she hears voices sometimes. Right. So 
they didn't take her seriously. Uh, Though maybe they should have. Uh, yeah, but like, ugh. I know. After her stressful bus ride home, Ruthie returned to her apartment alone, locked the front door, and went about the rest of her evening. But somewhere between 8.50 and 9.05 p.m. that night, Ruthie made a panicked 911 call. Ruthie's frantic call to authorities was frequently unintelligible, but here is the portion of the transcript that could be deciphered according to Steve, the author. Quote, and this is Ruthie. I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know? The dispatcher asks, what are they doing, ma'am? Ruthie responds in an unintelligible string of words, but apparently the dispatcher got the gist of what she was trying to say. Mm-hmm. And he says to her, they want to break in? And she says, and she said, she says, <laughs> and she said, yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. The dispatcher asks, from where? Ruthie says, I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach, can reach my bathroom. They want to come in through the bathroom. The dispatcher says, all right, ma'am, what's the address? Which she said twice now. Yep. Then Ruthie replies, 1440 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. The elevator's working. Which she would have to tell them because right. a lot of them didn't. The dispatcher said, 1109? All right, what's your name, man? ma'am? Ma'am. <laughs> what's your name, ma'am? I know, my <laughs> tongue is not working today. Ruthie replies, Ruth McCoy. The dispatcher says, all right, I'll send the police. Now, the dispatcher couldn't really tell from this phone call exactly what was wrong, but they also had received another phone call from the building reporting gunshots. So he sent a police car over, citing this not as a break-in or an attack, but as a, quote, disturbance with a neighbor, Hmm. which does not receive the same attention as a break-in. The officers arrive quickly and knock on Ruthie's door, but there was no answer. Neighbors who had kind of congregated in the hallway told law enforcement that she always answered her door, so it was very strange to see her not do so. Police then tried to obtain an extra key from the apartment management, management, so they went down to the office Mm -hmm. and were like, we need a key to this one. And the guy gave them a key, but the key that they got didn't fit Ruthie's lock. Law enforcement debated breaking the door down, but the security guards and management at the housing project convinced them not to because they were afraid Ruthie would sue them for the damages. Mm. Never mind the fact that she made an ominous 911 call and then never emerged from her apartment again. And so the police left. They just left? Yep. They left. They didn't want to unhinge the door or anything? Not yet. Mm -mm. Because it was a disturbance with a neighbor. Right. That she is now not answering the door to. She just didn't want to answer and left. But the neighbor said that she always answers, Holly. Mm-hmm. And they don't give a shit about these poor people in their rich-ass neighborhood. Okay. Mm-hmm. The next day, the police received several concerned phone calls from a neighbor who said she always saw Ruthie twice a day, every single day. Like, she would greet her in the morning when she left, and when she got home, she saw her again. They would wave, exchange pleasantries, and that's it. And she said that day she hadn't seen her at all. And... She was aware that the cops had been right, to her apartment yeah. the night before. She so knows she's to like, be I think like something's alerted. going on. Yeah. Uh, so authorities attempt to call Ruthie on the phone, but she doesn't answer. Shock, surprise. So they go back and knock on the door again, and she still doesn't answer. So they left. <sighs> the following day, so now it's been two days, Ruthie's neighbor was still incredibly concerned, and having received no help from the police, she decided to call the housing project managers. This time, they agreed that it was time to force entry into the apartment. So they called a carpenter who arrived with a drill and removed the door's lock. They were like, you right, you right. Let's Mm -hmm. open it. All right. (laughs) 
And also, like, you never needed to break it down. You always could have just dismantled the door. Why did you just leave? Mm. When the building managers and her neighbor enter the apartment, the smell of decay hung thick in the air, which isn't surprising considering it had been a few needless days since the incident. Ruthie was found lying in her bedroom, lying on her side in a pool of blood. Her belongings were scattered all around her. She had been shot four times. Quote, one bullet passed through her left shoulder, another passed through her left thigh. A third entered the right side of her abdomen, pierced her liver, and exited the left side of her abdomen. The fourth and fatal bullet passed through the right upper arm, then entered her chest and severed the pulmonary vein. Her cause of death was listed as internal bleeding. The medical examiner said because of this, she had likely not died immediately. (sighs) Exsanguination is not a super quick death always. But given her injuries, it was unlikely that she would have survived even if she had received immediate medical attention. But still, you have to wonder. At least she'd have somebody there trying. She would have had a chance. Yeah. We don't know. Or just been with somebody. Or been with somebody, absolutely. How did the, so the neighbors didn't hear gunshots? They weren't just like. They did. And they reported them to the police. Oh, but But they were, were they not connecting the area? I don't think they, well, they were like, there's always gunshots in this building. Like, yeah, but it's also in the same spot that this person called for uh, even a neighborly disturbance. Yeah, I think the gunshots were just reported as in the building, not specifically in this apartment. But how did, like, the neighbors next door just be like, I did hear gunshots to those police officers? I think also people were afraid of the police. Um, Yeah, I know. And in addition to that, like, they are clearly not helping. Right. They don't really seem to care because— Right, we don't really know here. what that scene was like. No, and I'm also yeah. speculating. This is like a an area known for like gang violence and upsetting poverty that is in the middle of two super affluent neighborhoods. Yeah. So the cops don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. So clearly this had been a robbery. The apartment was in total disarray and things were missing. But it was an awfully strange robbery given that it happened inside an 11th floor apartment that was locked from the inside and the assailants were no longer there. Mm. Where did they go? They couldn't have just jumped out the 11-story window. There was no fire escape. It was just like, you'd have to fall down. How did they get in? Door was locked from the inside. How did they get stuff out? Initially, police just reported that Ruthie must have known her attackers and let them in for a visit. All right. Still, though, how did they get out? Mm Mm-hmm. Upon further investigation of the crime scene, police discovered that Ruthie's bathroom had been completely destroyed, and in the chaos, police noticed that the medicine cabinet had been torn off the wall, leaving a curious hole behind. A hole that gave them a view right into the next apartment. Now think back to Ruthie's 911 call. She told the dispatcher that they, quote, throwed the cabinet down. And she was right. Remember when I said these buildings were shoddily made? Well, every single apartment had a medicine cabinet secured over a hole in the wall with just six nails. The hole was supposed to provide access to the plumbing should maintenance need to make a repair, but this poorly thought-out strategy also gave a whole lot of nefarious characters easy access to any apartment they happened to share a bathroom wall with. Furthermore, because of her proximity to the apartment where her attackers were staying, Ruthie probably also heard them planning her attack. And so... When she told people on her bus that she was in fear for her life, she had every reason to feel that way. They simply wrote her off because of her mental illness. Mm -hmm. What's even more disturbing 
is that Ruthie's was far from the first violent medicine cabinet break-in to occur. It was just the only one reported to the authorities. It was a well-known fact in the building that gang members would easily pass through bathroom walls to rob unsuspecting tenants and commit violent crimes. And so, the kids in the housing project would live absolutely in fear of a monster coming through their bathroom mirror. Imagine, you leave your room in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. No. It's dark. Mm-mm. And your eyes would be blinded by the light, so you're not about to turn it on at that hour. You go about your business, but are distracted by a strange and distant sound. After a few moments of confusion, you realize that there is whispering coming from inside your wall. It sounds so close, and yet you cannot see anyone around. The whispers are saying horrible, violent things, and you convince yourself that it's all in your head. Go to the sink and wash your hands. As you absentmindedly peer at your dim reflection in the bathroom mirror, after a second or two, you notice that your reflection begins to tremble. You wonder if the room is shaking, but after grabbing the sink and planting your feet firmly on the floor, you realize it's just the mirror. It creaks a little. Then a pop rattles the aspirin you keep on the second shelf for occasional headaches. You lean closer to see what's happening. You think maybe it's a mouse. It shakes a little harder, and you hear the ting of something metal hitting the floor. And then silence. You wait for a few seconds, then a few more. Maybe you were just hearing things. Then the mirror jumps. It rattles and struggles against the wall. You jump back in abject terror as the entire cabinet pops off the wall and crashes to the ground, shattering the mirror into bits and pieces. There is now a dark hole where the mirror used to be, and on the edge you see gloved fingers reach through and grab the wall for support. A man crawls through like an enormous spider, weaving between pipes before climbing over the sink and standing at his full height, a kitchen knife glinting in his hand. He sees you, And before you can even breathe enough for a gasp, he lunges. Now, I'd say if this was a possibility in your home, you wouldn't want your kids lingering in the bathroom at night, would you? Mm -mm. No. Folk tales are often created out of necessity to protect children from unseen dangers. Remember the Nordic elves who wandered through the terrain, like rough terrain, tripping children and throwing them off cliffs? Yeah. Icelanders most certainly took advantage of this tale to keep their kids off the rockier mountain paths. This is... Sort of the same thing, only way more violent. (sighs) So the next time someone dares you to stand in a dark bathroom repeating the name of a fictional boogeyman five times, tell them you'd much rather play light as a feather, stiff as a board, and leave it at that. Oh, gosh. No, thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. There was a, I, I forget, because I know that we did these at a campfire like over a year ago. Way a long time ago. I don't remember if it was after the campfire, someone shared a YouTube video or a TikTok of someone finding a hole in their apartment yeah. wall and like the girl actually went in and it was a whole empty apartment. Yep. <laughs> yeah, like, TikTok found knew exactly about. that. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's like through the bathroom. This was not super uncommon in like low income yeah. apartment buildings. They were like I would imagine because of the where they're how they're connected too. Mm-hmm. You would think that they should be able to travel through. Oh, it was it was And the police were so awful in so many ways, but they were also like, well, we originally didn't think that's what happened because we couldn't fit through that hole. Mm. What? That means nobody can? And um, the author of It Came, They Came Through the Bathroom Mirror spoke to a janitor in the building, and he was like, yeah, it was well known that people climbed through those walls all the time. Right. Ew, can you imagine living in a place where people were just climbing through the walls? No, I hate it. I know. 
Ew. Be like, Mom, Dad, we're living on the streets. I don't care. It's fine. I can't. There's no walls out there. <laughs> Let's just, like, put our buddy into a car. We'll sleep in that. Mm-hmm. It'll be fine. <laughs> I hear about van life. Oh, no. <laughs> Get out of here with the van life. Jeez. Ah, <laughs> oh, so that is my story. <laughs> I hope no one has trouble sleeping tonight. Oh, I will. I definitely will. So to finish it all up, we have some uh, fun facts about... Cursed films. Cursed films. So, Leslie, why don't you give yours first? Because mine is just like a little tag. A little tag. All right, well, I'll do one, and then then you could do yours. Okay. um, Okay. So my first one is The Twilight Zone, the movie. Ooh. Consists of four stories plus a prologue. The first story is Time Out, starring Vic Morrow. Morrow had been acting for decades by that point, playing nearly 100 roles in both films and TV shows over the course of his long career. Unfortunately, Twilight Zone the movie would be his last project. Uh-oh. In Time Out, Morrow plays a racist man thrust into the past and forced to live out life-threatening racist scenarios from the point of view of persecuted minorities. Ooh. Morrow's character ultimately suffers a terrible fate, seemingly on his way to a Nazi concentration camp. Oh, man. However, Time Out was not meant to end this way. Instead, Morrow's character was written to rescue two Vietnamese children, played by, and I'm going to ruin their names, Micah Dine Lee and Renee Shin Yi Chin, from an attacking U.S. helicopter in the middle of the Vietnam War. All my stories of the Vietnam War. I know. (laughs) Redeeming, uh, so this would redeem himself and changing his ways. Mm, Okay. So it was supposed to have like a nice ending. All right. But during the filming of this scene, the helicopter was flying what the National Transportation Safety Board later determined was too close to the set. (gasps) And the force and blinding flash of expulsion effects used proved too much for the pilot and the aircraft itself, leading to it spinning out of control and landing directly on top of Morrow, Lee, and Chen. And killed them instantly. Oh, my God. Isn't that horrifying? Yes. Yeah. Ew. So this also led to uh, regulations like being put into yeah. place for like safety safety protocols when using aircrafts. Because the I think it was the director was actually the one that was just like, come closer, come closer. Oh, my God. And they were kind of like, oh, we shouldn't get it too close. And this actually um, grew a split between that director and Steven Spielberg. Like they don't talk yeah. anymore like since then. If I were Spielberg, yeah. I'd be like, uh-uh, we're done. Mm-hmm. But the uh, after some time and some court hearings, um, that director was like, "Let he he wasn't charged with this because it was like also him not realizing that that was right, I not mean, knowing he, that that could have happened. He didn't do it on purpose, but yeah. still, he wasn't very careful. Yeah, but ter- terrible. Ooh, yeah. yeah, that is terrible. All right, what's yours? Okay, so did you know that there was a murderer in the movie The Exorcist, <gasps> like in the cast? Oh, yeah. One of the movie's most famous scenes features a seemingly mild-mannered real-life radiographer who was brought on to the film to lend some accuracy to a scene that involved a medical procedure. The director had actually witnessed this guy perform this procedure and um, had been pretty fascinated by it. He was like, and then he asked his colleagues about this guy, and they're like, oh, he's the best here. He's great. What did he do? I'm sorry. I'm going to get into the procedure in a minute. Okay, okay. He's a radiographer. Okay. So he was doing some kind of scene that involves puncturing your carotid artery. Okay. Which seems, sounds to me like it would just kill you immediately. Mm-hmm. But I guess there are tests in which you have to do that. And he was apparently good at it. 
And the director thought, oh, I'm going to put him in the movie because I have a scene wherein this happens and I want it to look as real as humanly possible. I don't want it to look fake or for people to find medical inaccuracies in it. Uh, So in this scene, the man whose name is Paul Bateson speaks almost all of the dialogue so you can hear his voice, demonstrating his extremely calming bedside manner. And this is the attribute, attribute that drew him praise from all of his colleagues and that drew the director to him. Because while he was performing these procedures that were pretty painful, he was very, like, calming. So people, like, wanted to trust him. hmm He had used the same calming voice with many actual child patients. He can be seen in the background as soon as Reagan is wheeled into the hospital room. So, they, like, bring her to get some tests. And when they wheel her in, you can, like, immediately see this guy. He helps her put her on the table and attaches wires to her shoulders. And as the film shows Reagan's face in a tight close-up, alternating with takes of the procedure being finished, it includes blood spurting into the air and staining her surgical gown, which is exactly what the director observed when he saw this happen in real life. Now, Paul Bateson, the radiographer's voice, is heard off camera, instructing Reagan, warning her that it's going to hurt, but everything is going to be all right. Mm. And you see her face like wince in pain. Upon the exorcist's release at the end of 1973, this scene became notorious as one of the ones that audiences found the most disturbing, even though it is completely void of any supernatural content. Mm -hmm. It's just a very accurate, painful medical procedure. Wait, so did they actually do it? No. Oh, okay. He was just telling her, like, kind of instructing her, like, almost how to act through it. Yeah. He was was talking because, like, exactly the way he would to a real patient, and the director was like, oh, this—I want the real guy to do it. Okay. And I guess he also, like, told them how they could fake it, for what it it looked like and stuff. So it looks really, really accurate, apparently. Medical professionals have praised the scene as a realistic depiction of this procedure, which is of special historic interest since it's no longer performed with the same kind of puncture. And one of the most, and it's one of the most realistic depictions of any medical procedure in a popular film. Mm -hmm. So it's like a big deal. That is all unsettling enough, but what makes it worse is that the technician performing this test in the film would go on to commit at least one brutal murder in real life and was suspected of many more. In 1979, Paul Bateson was convicted of the murder of film industry journalist Addison Verrill and sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. Addison had been found dead in his apartment, having been beaten and stabbed to death in what seemed like a sex act. Hmm there were some signs of a struggle. So also it is rumored that Paul Bateson went on to kill a handful of other men at the time in acts, in sex acts that he went too far Mm. with. But you can see him and listen to him in The Exorcist. That's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. (sighs) All right. Well, I have one more. Okay. So this one's The Omen, which was Mm -hmm. um, written and filmed after The Exorcist, right? Mm -hmm. So The Omen might be one of the most haunted film sets. This movie is about a antichrist, Damien. It was said that before filming, there were warnings to make this film because the devil wouldn't approve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The initial idea for The Omen came from Robert L. Munger, a devout Christian who was inspired by reading the book of Revelation. The idea intrigued producer Harvey Benhard of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But as the producer recalled the documentary, The Omen Legacy, Munger warned us the devil didn't want us to make the picture. To some degree, Munger wanted the 
the omen to be a Trojan horse that could potentially bring people to God, much like The Exorcist was a deeply Catholic story that reconnected author William Peter Blatley with his faith. So to me, that's just like a bad start. Yeah, not great. Don't be fooling the devil. You're going to get burnt. (laughs) You're burnt. You're burnt. (laughs) But the movie got made, and it was a huge hit, but not without its casualties. One, the first sign of trouble, or shall we say the first omen on the omen, uh, happened when Peck's plane was struck by lightning when he was flying to the London set. Three days later, as the producer Mace Newfeld was flying over to England on the same flight, his flight was also hit by lightning. Lightning hitting planes isn't uncommon, but it seemed to set off a string of bad fortunes. Yeah. While filming in London, they were in the midst of the IRA bombings. Uh, One evening, they were heading out to dinner, and the restaurant they had reservations at was bombed an hour before their arrival. Mm. On their way to the subway station, the station blew up right in front of them. Yikes. The production was also going to use a plane when they got a call from the airline who told them, we have a full charter. If you let us charter out, we'll give you the plane for practically nothing. Uh, So, like, who would pass up the free offer? They were like, yeah, yeah. we'll save some money. That'll be great. But when the plane tried to take off, the engines gave out after hitting a flock of birds, and the plane crashed into a car after careening off the runway. Everyone in the car and the pilot's wife and children died in the crash. If the director and producers had decided to film that day, it could have been them. Yikes. But also, like, those poor people. Yeah. He just got in the crossfires Good like devil and Jesus, oh, just no. like going at it. During one sequence in the film, Damien's adopted mother takes her little antichrist out for what's supposed to be a pleasant day at the zoo. But the animals sense they're in the presence of evil and freak out. The shoot went to the Windsor Wild Safari Park where they shot a scene that involved lions that didn't wind up in the final film, so the crew moved on to the baboon section of the park. One of the guards in the zoo was later killed by two lions who snuck into the guard's booth when he absentmindedly left his door open. Oh, my God. Or did, like, the devil distract him? Oh, my God. During the scene when the baboons attacked the family car, Lee Remick, who plays Catherine, the mother of Damien, had trouble working the gear shift. And when the baboons were unleashed, she genuinely freaked out on camera. Oh, my God. I would, too. Baboons are violent. The crew finally cleared the animals away from the car, and she was able to drive to safety. And lastly, one of the most haunting stories surrounding the Omen actually didn't happen during the shoot, but during the production of World War II epic A Bridge Too Far. John Richardson, who did special effects on the Omen, was involved in a head-on collision that beheaded his girlfriend, eerily mirroring the Omen decapitation scene with David Warner, who played Keith Jennings in the film. Yeah. Oh, no. But supposedly, after the crash, Richardson saw a sign that said... Omen, O-M-M-E-N, 66.6 kilometers. Ew. Yeah. Oh. It's not. Ugh. So it was like even the effects of this film were like happening wow. after its production. Oh, my God. That's so scary. <sighs> I know. Ooh, happy yeah. Halloween times. Yes. There are a lot more like cursed movies. There are, yeah. The Exorcist has a ton. The Exorcist has so many. Just the fact that they had to, um, they kept having to postpone productions because of death. They had like six deaths on set. Oh, yeah. People would not stop dying. Yeah. But I think, I think it's better that we just did one because um, 
we will probably cover the real, the true story that inspired The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. I think this, I think we'll do more of these. They're yeah. really fun um, because there is a true story and it's not Annalise Michelle. It's another mm-hmm. exorcism. And then we'll, we can talk about all the horrible things that yeah. happened on that set. <laughs> um, maybe we'll also cover the murderer. Yeah. That's interesting. His story is interesting, but I didn't want to tell all of it. Yeah. No, that's for another day. So that's for a another day. Tease. Maybe some patron content. Yeah. We'll see. Right. So Anything cute. else, Holly? No, I think that's it. Toast? Toast. Right. Um, boy. Mm. Oh, yeah. Who do we... Well, who's the woman Ruthie in yours? Ruthie May. Yeah. All right. To Ruthie May, because she really... Oof, she got dealt a bad hand. And to... All those people who died in your story in their sleep? Oh, gosh. All the Hmong men. All the Hmong refugees. Oh, cheers to them. And do we have anyone else we We trust this week? We do. So, last week I mispronounced one of our patrons' names. Wasn't the first time. Won't be the last. (laughs) But now she gets a redo. So, toast to our aspiring van lifer, Anne Barang. To Anne. (laughs) And we have a new best fiend forever to toast. Who is it? She faints at the sight of pig's blood. Oh, no. Carrie. Carrie? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Cheers to Carrie. <laughs> that was a good one. I see yeah. what you did there. Yep, yep. Pretty good. <laughs> and if we ate bananas while mowing our lawn, we, we would, would be, be dead. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Fiends really are lurking in the shadows here.